Welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I have the privilege of welcoming back Professor Lorimer Mosley to chat about the latest in the world of pain science. Lorimer is Professor of Clinical Neurosciences and Foundation Chair in Physiotherapy at the University of South Australia. He has over 25 years of clinical experience, has authored more articles than I can count, as well as five books, which include some of the best-selling pain titles in the world. Lorimer, thank you for joining us again on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I thought we could start today by diving straight into a case study. A 50-year-old man comes to see you with what he's describing as low back pain, which has been ongoing for two months. There was no precipitating injury, but he has been spending more time sitting down at work during the day and is now finding even day-to-day tasks at home difficult to perform because of the pain. Where do you start with a patient like this? I think what I would what I would obviously want to understand is is make sure there's nothing sinister going on, but that's you know that's 101 initial assessment isn't that but uh, I, I guess the spirit of your question is what what do I want to know presuming everything is you know there's nothing nasty I guess where I would want to go from there is to understand what he wants to get out of seeing me how he thinks I can help and what is his understanding of uh, the situation as it stands what he can do to return to the life that he wants and, and achieve his goals and how I might be able to, to match my skill set with those things. When exploring the patient's pain, what language should clinicians use and equally, what language should clinicians avoid? Yeah, that's a nice question. I'd, I'm quite reluctant to say what people should and shouldn't do, but I, again, if I was to say uh, what language would I use, I, I think that I'd I, I want to be quite careful in all of my communications with people in pain to to be precise and deliver safety messages whenever whenever I can and avoid danger messages whenever I can and and by that I, and by the precise bit of that I would be quite careful to uh, make sure that I'm differentiating his pain from his concept of injury because they those Two things may not relate very well. We're in a tricky situation because uh, we're going to float the op- the the option and the, the the contemporary understanding of how things work that the pain is almost certainly an overprotective feeling. Uh, so I think it's really important to always be making sure that this person in front of me knows that I think they're legit, uh, that I'm uh, validating. Uh, their experience and and their journey without necessarily agreeing with their diagnos- diagnosis and prognosis of it as it stands. So it's quite a, I think it's quite a tricky communications strategy that one has to adopt. Uh, but if we were to talk about the things, you know, that I would try and avoid saying, I think I would try and avoid saying things that could be uh, in, in which this person could spot Rene Descartes. Uh, and by that, I mean, uh, I'd be a, I'd want to be aware of not communicating things that imply outdated understandings of how pain works. So I, I, I like this idea of people searching for Renee in what you're saying, searching for Renee Descartes. But also, if they can't find Renee Descartes, searching for confirmation of, of what's a common expectation that I'm saying it's all in your head, it's not real. So I want to avoid that as well. How else would you go about validating the patient with pain rather than the pain itself? I think I would, 
I'll certainly, I don't like the phrase that I hear quite often when we do uh, vivas with students and uh, with postgrads. This phrase, you know, this very mean, uh, well-meaning phrase of "I know your pain is real for you," yada yada yada. I, I think that's a really problematic thing to say because I think it implies it's not real for me. So I, I guess I would always want to be saying, you know, this is horrible for you, isn't it? A- acknowledging that if that indeed is what this person is expressing, uh, you're really worried about this, aren't you? Oh, that, that, that seems like it's freaking you out, for example, if, if it does. Um, you know, those sorts of things rather than saying, oh, that's a worrying sign uh, or that must be, you know, like a knife in your back. Should we as clinicians be looking at the patient's pain as an entity versus being the process or something they have versus something they are working through? Well, I mean, they are really, in my view, they're really important differentiations to make within the clinician's mind and then be true to, to that reasoning in our communication. So I think, you know, there, I think there is a, a strong sense that people have that pain is a thing that happens to them and and I think it's tied up and I think it's tied up a fair bit in in how closely pain and tissue damage seem to work with each other I think they don't they don't work with each other nearly as well as we we presume in fact I would say that 100% of the time the purpose of pain is protection uh, and 0% of the time the purpose of pain is to tell you what you've done that would be my view on this but if you've done a major injury, you've got a lot of inflammation, then you're very sensitive. But that sensitivity is about protecting the tissues. And I think that maybe because of that, that close link between those two things, people do tend to talk about the pain as a yeah, as an entity, as a as a thing that's happened or a thing that exists and is there to be detected. And my understanding is uh, of contemporary pain stuff is that pain is a uh, is the end result of a, a very sophisticated process that, uh, in fact, it's not even the end result. Actually, it's one one player in an in an online, continually processing, problem solving, unified human, multi dimensional system. <laughs> you know, it's not I, I, it's not that long ago that I would have said, "Oh, your pain is the end bit," and and in many contexts I will still say that. And what I'm trying to get across there is that. A whole lot of problem solving is happening inside the the human, and my understanding of of when pain occurs is when the human calls upon consciousness to direct our behaviour. But I I think it's really important to realise that the system doesn't stop then. Like the system is a is in a continual process of of adjustment and changing behaviour and seeing if that works. And when you change behaviour, you change all the sensory input anyway. And uh, and that's where this idea of process, pain, pain being a process, and their and their journey being a process, rather than pain being something that's happened to them and that's the way it is, or something that's happened to them and they're hoping someone can take it away. Uh, I think that that we can extend that idea of process even further to say that being being a human is a process. You know, we're always in some stage of that process, a continual sort of outputs and inputs and yeah all that sort of stuff and if and i really like the idea of getting people getting people in pain to appreciate the and this is a phrase i i probably have used i don't know a thousand times to appreciate the fearful and wonderful complexity of themselves uh and 
and how the system is primed, the irresistible force of healing and of learning and all that sort of stuff. And we are in a process. If we focus on the system in which an individual finds themselves, could you speak a bit more about the context of pain, the power of context to that person's pain? I think an understanding of of the the fundamental importance of context can be helpful, but also tricky. You know, the, all of these things take take time, not only just in the instance, but in, during the journey of someone's recovery. And that's where I think the less expensive the health professional, the better for some of these journeys that, that require a, a big chunk of reconceptualization like that. The whole idea that someone might have that they've been told they have a degenerative disc disease, which is a thing uh, in their mind, and we are trying to apply contemporary understanding of of pain and function and discs uh, to help that person shift their trajectory and their understanding of the problem. Uh, Context is just one part of that, right, getting to understand that actually it's the contextual data that uh, they're they're the clincher, right, in many ways, and that's, that's why we can have this massive range of experiences in response to the same tissue event or events or structure that are going on is the the reason for that in my understanding is context genetics and context okay genetics learning and context context is i guess meaningless without learning anyway we've thought a lot about about helping people to understand the context not just of their pain but of their situation and that even that's some of the thinking behind the seven the seven magical things of the of the protector meter to get people to understand that actually how much your system is protecting you depends on uh, who you're with where you are the sensory cues coming in what's happening in your body so not just the social context but the physical environmental context but also the biological context in which this is happening uh, but that that's a again that's a pretty big journey I'd you, know, you started this question with a person a month, uh, two months down the track of low back pain not associated with a specific incident, although probably sitting down more than they used to. It would be pretty hard to, and and probably not very prudent to jump into some discussion of, of context in that scenario. So I would see that as part of the learning and integrating that into into treatment and into care depends on the reasoning If we put all of these different elements or considerations together and talk about the biopsychosocial model of patient care, what do you think most clinicians have wrong about the model? (laughs) You're really wanting me to say wrong and should, aren't you, Daniel? I feel uncomfortable with those things because I I don't know that it's wrong, but what I think is the dominant understanding, our research will tell us, the dominant understanding of the biopsychosocial model of pain is what I would call a biological model of pain or a biomedical model of pain with a psychosocial understanding of its impact. I don't think that's consistent with what we understand from experiments, from biological systems uh, and from observations. I think it's more uh, and would be predicted by contemporary theories of how the brain works. And, and if I try and differentiate the the dominant, so the most common understanding of the biopsychosocial model that I've just mentioned, where if you can imagine the biomedical refers to what is happening at the tissue level and some sort of pathology or 
aberrant functioning of a nerve. And then that has effects on the way people think, on their mood, on their relationships, on their expression of their functional capacity, those sorts of things. That's the dominant model. Uh, I think a more accurate model is that pain actually emerges uh, from a system that is processing all of those data. So it's processing incoming sensory data from your spinal cord and from your body via your spinal cord. Uh, It's also processing data about what's happening around you. It's also taking into consideration all the stored data you have and the stored data you have includes your knowledge about the situation, your psychological data, your social data, your contextual data, all that sort of stuff. And pain emerges after all of those things are processed together. That, that I think, is a more accurate reflection of the biopsychosocial model. That's not even the second most common conceptualization of the biopsychosocial model. In our, in our data, the, so we've got the most common is that pain is biomedical and it has psychosocial impacts. The second most common is that some pain is biomedical and some pain is psychosocial. And the most common trigger of going from one to the other is someone has biomedical pain for two months and 30 days uh, and then they flip into a psychosocial problem. Uh, I think that's an error. Uh, so I guess I'd probably say that's wrong. Uh, but I certainly don't think that's true to the data or the way we know the system works. So you you originally asked the question of what are, what are people getting wrong? Yeah, if I was to rephrase that question, what do, what do people think? What are most? What's the dominant model in the clinical world? Uh, it's those two models. What do I think is a more accurate reflection and the more accurate understanding of the biopsychosocial model is more along the idea of of a unified human where everything matters. And that's one of the slogans that we throw around with pain revolution, that when it comes to pain, when it comes to feelings, uh, when it comes to protection, everything potentially matters. If we return to our 50-year-old patient with back pain, what is the impact of imaging in the management of his pain? It depends. Uh, and, And therein lies a really important consideration. So our research group is is one of a few research groups that are looking at what impact does imaging have and more, uh, more to the point, what impact do imaging reports have? Uh, and there are some data that have been around for a while looking at uh, or concluding that on the whole, getting a scan for your back is puts you at a disadvantage, reduces your likelihood of recovery. Uh, just and, and my understanding is that's because it, it plants the seed of uh, inappropriate and over-treat, over-treatment, uh, but it also plants the the credible evidence in your in your cognitive system that there's a problem that is is causing your pain, and that problem is, for example, a potentially benign radiological finding. So, what what is the impact of getting a scan in someone like that? It will depend a lot on how that is pitched to them uh, in the beginning and how that is reported. But some of the work that we've done, uh, driven by Emma Caron, who's an outstanding postdoc with, with us, but for her PhD work here, she she devised this really cool virtual patient experiment where people who weren't patients had to imagine they were. And then they were given a scenario not unlike the scenario you've given me, and then they were randomly allocated to the GP, so the, the physician, the general practitioner or family physician, taking one of several courses of action. And, and one course of action was to apply best practice care 
good cognitive reassurance, not just emotional reassurance. There's a great paper by Tamar Macon, I think, or Tamar Pincus, Tamar Pincus, on that that difference between cognitive and emotional reassurance, where emotional reassurance is, you know, they're there, it's going to be okay, and cognitive reassurance is more education uh, explaining. Uh, we know it's going to be okay for these reasons, and do you understand those sorts of things? And best practice involves that recommending some some movement uh, and not even scanning. So that was one condition that Emma looked at. Another condition was getting the report back, having a scan, and then you get a report back. Another condition was having the scan, and you get a report back, but with the report is very clear and simple epidemiological data on how likely it would be for you to have these findings for your age if you had no back problems whatsoever. And that idea is not a novel idea, actually. That idea was uh, proposed, I think, a couple of decades ago. But Emma's, what Emma's study showed is that the, the best outcomes in that scenario as far as uh, confidence about your back and, and the way you might take your next step in your journey, the best thing we can do is exactly uh, what the best practice is, you know, really good explanation and reassurance. The second best thing we can do if we're going to get a scan is to uh, include really clear, simple information about the likelihood that this finding would occur in someone your age without back problems. One of the things you mentioned in the recommended treatment for patients' low back pain is movement. And one thing that I've heard you say often is motion is lotion. What is motion is lotion and how does it apply to our patient? <laughs> motion is lotion is a slogan which has a whole lot of educational power. Now, slogans are good. It rhymes. It's memorable. The And it's not mine, actually. I don't know to whom that should be attributed. Whenever I'm in doubt, I attribute it to Dave Butler because he tends to be great at these sorts of things. It may not be Dave's. I don't know whose it is. But the the reason I like it is tied up with something else that we, we do got uh, on about a lot, and we do have research about, and that is this idea that you are safe to move. Uh, and this, oh, I've had some great conversations with uh, consumer groups that I that are involved in our research, and that that phrase, motion is lotion, and the phrase you are safe to move, is can be a really tricky one for some people, because uh, what what I might mean by motion or movement uh, it might not necessarily be what the person in pain understands. Uh, for example, a conversation I had with a fellow I'm very grateful for. He's a, a fellow with a long history of back pain, very uh, articulate, clever, and angry person, uh, angry in a good way. And and he, you know, he's really kept me honest with some of those slogans. And and he has a very good point when he says, you know, you don't want to go saying to someone they're safe to move when they're not. And that's a really good point. And if you take safe to move to mean safe to get into the gym and do some ballistic high load movements or go for a marathon, then I don't think everyone is safe to do that. But I don't mean that. I mean motor commands and and movement that is not a sudden spike in load. I'd, I'd apply the same principles I would apply with managing a, a cricket fast bowler uh, or some other elite athlete where you where you really want to manage spikes. And I think it's the same principle. But what I do believe, based on my understanding of how the neuroimmune system works when nociception persists and when pain persists, is that 
the system becomes more sensitive. And I think there is compelling, very compelling data that persistent pain is associated with an overprotective pain system. Uh, and when the pain system is overprotective, it, in my view, it is exactly that. So, so you are safe to move because your system won't let you apply load on your tissues that will damage them. And the only exceptions to that, I think, were, would be a, a very unlucky event, you know, where an external load is put on your system that you don't have time to avoid. You, you, even an overprotective pain system doesn't have time to stop you. Or if you decide, well, Loz, Loz says I'm safe to move. I'm going to take a whole lot of analgesics and you know, get back on the trampoline, which you haven't done for 10 years. That would be stupid. So I say to people, you know, you're, you'll either be unlucky or stupid, but an overprotective pain system will stop you from moving too much. I mean, there's a, just to, I guess just to finish that, Daniel, I think there's, there's just so many mechanisms by which movement is going to be good for us. So many mechanisms within the even within the command structure, we know that motor commands are anti-nociceptive. Within the joints, we know that it lubes up the joints. It's what they like. The cartilage likes it. The, the tissue likes it. And if I was trying to be more precise with that, and because they may very well not have feelings, the movement improves the function of cartilage and of joints and it improves the function of muscles and if and and movement is the only thing that i know of that can trigger the the fundamental shift in macrophage macrophage profile at a muscle level so that what was pro-nociceptive becomes anti-nociceptive again you know it's, it releases chemicals that have anti-nociceptive effects but also spur on growth and remodeling and makes you stronger i mean the it's a massive list by which movement and functionally relevant movement, you add a whole lot of other stuff to it, is helpful. Is visualization also helpful? I think if you are, if you're, if you're visualizing some tragic event happening in your tissues as you're moving, that's not going to be helpful in my view. If you are visualizing a beautiful, strong back with joints gliding and muscles contracting, then that would seem to me to be good thing to do. Uh, I do think that that idea of visualizing good things and safe using it as, a, as a conveyor of safety messages, using visualization as a conveyor of safety messages, using visualization as a karma of uh, a nervous system that might be on hyper alert, they're, they're good things to do. We do know that usually using visualization of the skin or uh, improves tactile function, at least for the hands, that might be helpful. We also know that visualizing a body part during movement usually has an analgesic effect, uh, which we don't fully understand. Uh, so visualization can be a really helpful tool, but uh, if we say to someone, I just want you to visualize your back going, you know, going through this movement as you do this in, you know, in your head, uh, that might be really negative if what they're visualizing is things crunching up against each other and discs bulging out and stuff like that. Lorimer, it is now over 30 years since Gordon Waddell wrote his seminal book, The Back Pain Revolution, and for many years you have been leading your own pain revolution. Could you share with our listeners what your pain revolution is all about? <laughs> uh, well, it's not my pain revolution. It is, the pain revolution is a, a grassroots, grass tops movement of people from across disciplines, from across contexts, 
from yeah, actually literally many walks of life. Pain, and pain revolution that, that I'm involved with then is different from what Gordon Waddell was uh, talking about, but it has clear connections. It's got a clear uh, lineage, I guess, because one of the really excellent things about that that work of his was was to say, well, hang on, uh, we need to think of back pain in a broader context. And I guess pain revolution that we're involved with is is also suggesting that. But I think it's also uh, trying to capture the idea that uh, whole of community education is may very well be the the one thing we require, and within that, a shift in consumer expectations and community norms is something that we are targeting. And I think that's that's a revolutionary idea, actually. I think both in in terms of it being an idea that's disruptive, but also an idea that hopefully will gain momentum as it spreads across the community. And the vision of Pain Revolution is that it's focused on Australia at the moment, although there are groups around the world who are uh, implementing things based on it. But our vision is that uh, all Australians will have the knowledge, uh, the skills and the access to, to local resources to prevent and overcome persistent pain. And that's a real uh, shift from the dominant models of the last 50 years, which have been more along the lines of people should have access to treatments that will fix their pain uh, and and not be the the enabled, empowered master of their own destiny that we're trying to achieve. So we've been running now since uh, we, we took a gamble in the beginning of 2017 to run what we called Pain Revolution Tour. And the original uh, name of Pain Revolution had three purposes. One was disruptive idea. One was community-driven and community-focused. And the other one was when we started, it was a uh, a tour involving bike rides, so revolution of the wheels. We are now planning our fourth Pain Revolution Rural Outreach Tour for 2020 that will be running from Geelong in Victoria uh, and then heading east up through some beautiful countryside but through uh, towns and regional centres for a week. But it's it, Pain Revolution Rural Outreach Tour is one and not the most significant of our strategies that we are implementing. So we're, we are in it for the long game and we're very much in it with a focus on you know, building. So we, the, the first thing I mentioned was changing community norms and consumer expectations so that when people uh, think about what, what should I do about my pain, they expect what we would call high-value care. Uh, or another slogan, the best treatments we have. And at the moment, guidelines around the world tell us that the best treatments we have are good education, active and psychological therapies and self-management skills. So we would love people to expect that when they go to a health provider, they will get those things. Uh, and then the other, the other aspect of what we're trying to do is to build capacity to deliver that, uh, particularly in rural and regional Australia. So uh, we help rural and regional health professionals to gain really high-level training in pain science and education. We mentor them. We facilitate them uh, reaching out to their community with six outreach events in a year and then establishing what we call a local pain collective. And that's a group of health professionals that we support as pain revolution 
with ongoing professional development uh, and strategies to shift consumer expectations uh, and community norms within their community and to help health professionals within their network deliver high value care. Uh, I think that you know, the, imagine this scenario, Daniel, where you as a as a health professional have that person two months down the track turn up for treatment and what they ask you for is high value care and you are completely confident in delivering that, uh, teaching them why they're safe to move, give them skills for self-management for the journey towards recovery. Uh, so that's, I guess that's what Pain Revolution is trying to do. The, the tour that we're running in March next year is an awareness raising, fundraising activity. And it's critical that we raise funds because we provide scholarships to health professionals from a range of professions. Uh, and to do that, we've got to raise money. So cyclists get on their bike for uh, eight days, 850 kilometres through beautiful countryside, but working really hard and raising a lot of money from their, their network. So they all pay their way and they raise money and that money goes into our local pain educator and local pain collective programs. It's cool. It's very cool. Uh, and it's slowly building uh, and we're excited about where it's going. Lorimer, on behalf of the whole BGSM community, we want to wish you all the best for your Pain Revolution tour in Victoria next year. And thank you very much for your time today to share your clinical knowledge with our listeners. No worries, Daniel. Thank you, mate. I appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate you working with my stumbly answers. Thank you for listening to this BGSM podcast, Professor Lorimer Mosley. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect to our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BGSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BGSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.